So let's jump in. We left off uh, in verse 19. We had talked about how slaves um, should be, you know, how they should be handled in the economy of Israel. Uh, And we have to remember that these laws that God put in place were, he was establishing not only a new land, but reassembling his people. So he was building a structure for them to live in, to shine as a light, to fulfill ultimately what God had called Abraham to do and his descendants, which is to be a light to the Gentiles. So we see these laws outlined and it's very different from everything around them. So much so that we're like, these are kind of really peculiar laws. Like, why can't we mix fabrics? Why can't we eat shellfish? You know, things like that. Um, we'll get to those as we get to them. But, <laughs> but those, are time, so those are the excuses that um, biblically illiterate people throw out and say, well, the Bible's not relevant because it says that you shouldn't do this or that. Um, and we looked at a little bit of that because they, they immediately will say, well, the Bible condones slavery. And we talked about that last week about how the way we view slavery in our current society is not what the Bible condones. In fact, we looked at last week, there's a verse in, the, in Exodus 21 that specifically condemns slavery as we understand slavery. You know, this African slave trade and all those things. It says if you take a man and sell him, then that you will be punished. So, you know, it's really encouraging often to, to read things in context. And I know sometimes when we get to these passages of Scripture, it's when we start to really speed up the pace in our reading. And, you know, all of a sudden we're like, and punishment, ox, gore, you know. <laughs> it, it, um, it's very easy, and I find myself doing it, uh, you know, to be honest with you, because you're like, okay, this doesn't really apply to me, so we move on. But, you know, it's, it's exciting when you really, you know, out of necessity, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching this, so I have to really dig into it, and you start to find things that you're surprised at how it speaks to you. You read these verses on the surface and you don't think that they're going to speak to you at all until you start to dig into them and see God's heart in, in saying these things. He, he never says anything for no reason. So um, let's begin in verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. So right away, just like last week, we have a verse that we have to stop in our tracks and say, what does this mean? Um, Thankfully, it says that if the slave dies, when the man strikes him, then the the slave should be avenged. And when you read it, and you read about society up to that point, the different cultures that God was calling the Israelites out of, slaves were considered property to the extent that their lives didn't even matter. So if a slave died, oh well, you get another slave. That's how it was viewed. And even beyond this, we know in Rome, there were, I think it was like 60, or I forget how many, 60 slaves to every free man or something like that. That's probably a total exaggeration, but there were a lot of slaves. And they would, you could kill your slave for burning the toast, like I said last week. Um, And you could just get another slave because they were lining up. You could buy anybody. So this is actually the first time that we see a slave's value being esteemed, the fact that if they were killed mercilessly, you know, by their master, that they would actually be avenged, and the master would have to pay the penalty of, of, you know, life for life. Now, when it says, if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, then we start to get uncomfortable, because we're like, oh, wait, so if he holds on to life a couple days, then the guy's fine, he doesn't get punished. Well, that is hard, and I don't have all the answers for it, but I will say that the fact that they survive a day or two kind of shows the the intent was not to kill the person when they were killing, when they were beating them, and we don't know the whole story behind it. Um, 
but in, in essence, there was still some of that, uh, you know, barbaric society in there in that they still were considered property, uh, although their life was valuable, which was revolutionary for the time. So in verse 22, we see when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her ch- children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Um, I found it really interesting as I read through this that many uh, people who support abortion actually use this verse in the Bible to say abortion's okay because God doesn't see the life of an unborn child as valuable as a, a, a a child that's been that's entered into the world and i go wait why do they say that and tons of stuff if you look up exodus 21 22 and 23 the internet blows up um because everybody talks about this verse either to support abortion or to defend against it Uh, and it really just comes down to understanding the language which i don't so i rely on other people that understand the language to speak to me so again i recommend this book is god a moral monster it's awesome um but essentially, they try to say, you know, there's one, I looked through all the Bible translations on Blue Letter Bible, they have like 10 or 12 or something like that, and all of the Bible translations say either gives birth prematurely, or the fruit come out, or it basically is, is describing a child being born prematurely. One translation, which is the Revised Standard Version, which is like the version that was to update the King James, I forget when, but they took the King James and tried to update it, and it's called the Revised Standard Version. It says miscarry so people take that one version of the bible and say see because it was there was a miscarry or miscarriage from this guy getting uh, hitting this woman but there was no harm to the woman you see that they he doesn't say life for life there so they try to make it as though because of that one translation the child dies but the mother is okay then there's not the most there's not the same severe punishment as if the mother were to die from the blood does that make sense so that's their argument The problem is is that the literal word that's used to describe the baby coming out is yalad. I don't know if that's pronounced correctly. And every time it's used in the Bible, it talks about someone giving birth normally. So that kind of pokes holes in their argument. Uh, Genesis 25, 26, uh, when Rachel gives birth to Jacob and Esau, uses the same word. And we don't know anything about a miscarriage there, as far as I know. Uh, Genesis 38, when Tamar gives birth to uh, Perez and... uh, who else? <laughs> the other guy. <laughs> Who is it? Zerah, thank you. Um, Job talks about it. Jeremiah. They always use the same word that's used here, and it has to do with a normal birth. Um, and actually, there is another word for miscarry that's used in the Old Testament, and it's actually used in Exodus 23 in two chapters. When, when God says he's going before them into the promised land, his, he's going to send his angel, and you're going to prosper in the land. Uh, none of you will be barren or miscarry. He says that, and it's the word miscarry. It's not the same word that's used here. So uh, just important because sometimes when we're, uh, it's, it's important that we, we realize that there are, like I said last week, there are really smart Christians out there. So uh, as much as we can, we, you know, we're not all Bible scholars. We all haven't all gone to seminary. We don't know Hebrew. We don't know Greek. So when we see something on the internet or we hear somebody say something like, well, that means abortion's okay, then we go, oh, what is, how do I defend that? Or how do I explain that? I feel stupid. But the good news is, is that God's not stupid. And the foolishness of God is wiser than man. So I just encourage you, you know, those little nuggets of of information are really uh, 
exciting when you see that and you're like, oh, okay, so um, there are reasons for everything that's in the Bible. But uh, we'll move on because I could talk at length about abortion and all that stuff, but uh, that's not why we're here. Uh, uh, in verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of the tooth. So we had just seen a verse where it said that if he beats his slave and the guy survives for a couple days and then dies, that he won't be avenged, meaning they won't take the slave owner's life for the slave that was injured for a few days and then succumbed to his injuries. But now we see, you know, and we kind of can get shocked at that, but now we see that if if the slave hurts the, uh, I'm sorry, if the master hurts the slave and his, he hurts his eye or hurts, hurts his, knocks out his tooth even, that the, the master needs to let the slave go free. So we really see something totally different than what society had seen and what we picture as slavery when we talk about it in the Bible again. So, and we talked at length last week about, you know, a lot of the types of slavery and how the Bible calls us slaves in a way to Christ and how Christ made himself a slave. So I'm not going to reiterate all those things. You can listen back if you want to. Uh, But it's really important because this was revolutionary. These laws, you know, they talk a lot about um, when you read about, especially the biblical law, the Old Testament law, they often talk about this thing called the Code of Hammurabi or something like that, I think it's called, which was like an old established law even before the law of God was given. It was like the you know, don't kill people, don't do this, don't do that. But some of the rules in those areas were even more strict. And it would actually, there was actually one that they would say, there, there was one about slaves, and it's like you can't kill your slave, blah, blah, blah. But then it says that if you, if you damage somebody's house and their uh, child dies, then they can take your child and kill your child. So like, you're like, okay, that doesn't sound like a law that God would make up. So people try to say that, you know, Christianity and, and, and the Old Testament is based on these other foreign religions, and it's just like a, a made-up version of all this. But they're totally different. When you look at what those things actually say versus what the Bible says, God is very compassionate, very loving, and very organized uh, in how he lays out this law. And again, we talked about it last week, but I'll just say it again. We think of the law as the list of don't do this, because if this happens, then something really bad will happen. But we should really think about it. And as God said in Deuteronomy 6, he said, if you do these things, you will prosper. It will go well with you. God is saying, just like he said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree because you're going to die. You know, we're like, oh man, that, that tree looks so good though. Like, why was he so strict? You know, you can have all the trees in this garden and they're all beautiful and they're awesome. And you can hang out with me. You don't have to wear those cumbersome clothes. Life is good, Right. And, we're like, and we can say, but, but why did he put the tree? And it's like, but, but why didn't he make all the trees off limits and give them one to eat? You know, like think about it that way. Like we, we put God in this like thou shalt not box instead of the thou shalt. How many times did God say go do or enjoy this or go and take this because it's yours? And I think it's funny that every time God says go and do something, we go, oh, I don't know. And every time he says don't do that, we go, oh, yeah, this is awesome. You know, <laughs> like think about it. Like Jesus said, don't tell anybody about how I healed you. Just go to, back to your family. And they're all like, Jesus healed me, blah, 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 blah. And then he's like, go and make disciples. And everybody goes, well, how do I do that? And they freak out and they sit in their church and they 
you know, I was about to say, and they have potlucks. And I'm like, we just did. So that was like, I was not anything about our church itself. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like the, the stereotype of like churches that just get together and hang out together and do nothing else. You know what I'm talking about. I wasn't insulting our, us. I was insulting me because I enjoyed that potluck immensely. So, uh, but anyway, you guys get what I'm saying? You know, it's not the list of don't do this. It's the how-to manual to live life well in God's uh, economy or in God's uh, land, essentially, is what they're looking for. So uh, he, we move on from slaves and uh, we, we go into oxes. So this is a kind of interesting passage. It says, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. So if we, we know animal instincts, they just kind of all of a sudden, like my cats love me, and then they just freak out all of a sudden and bite me. You know, like they just get like that. There's like a little baby tiger in there somewhere, you know, their long distant relative, you know, or like animals, they just, they're, you always hear about people getting attacked by dogs or by this or by that or Shamu or, you know, and they're like, oh, they're so docile, like, there's always this wildness in there. So we see this ox, and they're saying, you know, he's never, never done this before. He gores an animal. Uh, I'm sorry, a person. So you stone the animal, which I think is kind of, it's kind of a funny image to picture just like people throwing stones at an animal. An ox is probably like, what did I do? You know, but it was to purge out that, you know, uh, that evil, essentially. But the owner is not held liable because it wasn't really, it's not like he was walking the guy around and the ox had a big, uh, you know, prod, and he was trying to get people to, to tick it off, essentially, and gore them. And it wasn't what his plan was. Um, and it says, now, if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner had been warned, but, was, but had not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. So, you know, people always say, like, there are no bad Rottweilers, only bad owners. You know, like, people that say things like that, which I kind of understand what they mean. Like, dogs, especially dogs like that, like, they're only as angry and mean as their owners make them to be. So, essentially, this guy is like, he's like, I don't care that my ox is... And the, old, the King James says, if he was wont to push, which is a great translation. So, uh, but you just picture this ox, like, lowering his head and just, like, pushing into people and, like, people flying all over the world. Um, but that the owner is, is allowing that to continue with unchecked, then he's guilty of that, you know, because he was supposed to actually, if it had happened before, he should have killed the animal so that he w- would not be held liable. This, this animal was allowed to live and continue, you know. And I see that not just about ox, but I see that in, in society even. When, when someone is allowed, you know, in this instance it's an animal, but I think you can apply it to a person, but when there's not an immediate consequence for what you do, Oftentimes, it, you know, there's the initial, like, whoops, I shouldn't have done that. But then it kind of starts to build and feed. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's this, you know, carnage behind you. And you're like, well, how did this happen? It's like, well, you should have killed the ox a long time ago. And I think you can think of that as, an, you know, an analogy or allegory for sin in a lot of ways. You know, like that, you know, when that first reared its ugly head, you did not put it to death. And now you allowed it to kind of take over. And it, it's caused damage in other people's lives, not just in your own. So... Um, that might be a stretch, but I think it's, it's applicable, uh, or at least a good word picture. Uh, in verse 30, if a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. So uh, with this, there's a little bit of leniency. It's not your ox killed somebody, and he did. this is the second time, so you're dead. 
they actually, the judges, as they saw fit, depending on the, the case, could say, you need to pay this much money to whoever as to buy your way out of the death penalty, essentially. So there was some redemption that could happen in this case. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. I guess, you know, in, the, in these societies as well, I, I kind of was reading this and I was like, well, yeah, they're a person. Why is he put it in specifically? But as you, re- you will recall, you know, if you were not an adult male in that society, you were a lesser person. And it just, that's just how it was across the world. It wasn't God's way. That's not how God created. He created man and woman in his image. Uh, there was no better or worse or less important or more important. But because of the society, it would, very be, it would be very easy, easy for the Israelites to say, well, it's just a child, so, oh well, we'll have some more kids or whatever. You know, like, but God is showing that even a child's life is just as valuable as an adult. It's not an economy thing where, well, there were only eight, so they weren't plowing the field for me anyway, so I didn't really lose anything. Which, sadly, in that culture, uh, and in some, I'm sure some cultures nowadays, children were seen as like laborers. Like that you had kids to work your field and to, to carry on your legacy, essentially. But there wasn't that love relationship as God intended it to be. So he puts it in here specifically that if a son or daughter is killed by an ox, it's the same exact judgment. There's no difference if they're young or old. In verse 32, if the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. So again, we do see that there is some difference between a slave man and a free man. Not condoning it one way or another, um, but it does give you the option of paying the 30 shekels because the... um, the price of a slave, as we see throughout the Bible, is 30 shekels of silver. And I find it really interesting. The price of a gourd slave, the way it was redeemed, was in 30 shekels of silver. And we, if you are familiar with Zechariah, the prophecy that's quoted in Matthew 27, um, I'll just read it really quickly. I only had two verses, so I didn't put them on the screen. I apologize. But um, it says, Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was prized by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And if you're familiar uh, with Matthew, after Judas betrays Jesus, and he goes back to the Pharisees and says, I've betrayed innocent blood, Matthew actually quotes that passage, and it says in Matthew 27, 8 through 10, uh, it says he threw, actually, all the way back in verse 3, it says, he brought back the 30 pieces of silver, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And the the Pharisees and and the rulers said, what is that to us? And he threw down the pieces of silver into the temple, very similar to what happened in Zechariah, and he ran out and hung himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Um, And we'll talk about that in a second. It's saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. So we see this this idea of the 30 pieces recur throughout the scriptures, and it's really cool because we talked last week about how Jesus was a type of the servant 
that had yielded himself and was pierced on the doorpost to, to show his yieldedness to his master. And we talked about how Jesus says, or Paul says of Jesus in Philippians 2 that he'd become a bondservant, being obedient even to the death of the cross. And now we see that the price of a gourd or uh, you know, a slave that had been run through essentially by this ox with the horn is 30 pieces of silver. So that's another type of Jesus Christ being pierced as a slave on the cross and the 30 pieces you know, recalling to mind, as it were, that he is the, the ultimate sacrificial servant, as we see in Isaiah 52 and 53, that he's the suffering servant. So it points us to that as well. So there's all these little hints and things that point to Jesus, even throughout the, the law. Um, I, for any of you that caught that, it says, spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And if you recall, I read it from Zechariah. And everybody gets up in arms about that. Um, but most likely the explanation is they didn't have individual scrolls for the books of the Bible like we do. And when Matthew says Jeremiah, that verse from Zechariah was on the same scroll as Jeremiah was written as they were accustomed to. So, you know, that's usually how people kind of say that that's why he says Jeremiah there, because it was contained on the same scroll. And Jeremiah was considered a major prophet, whereas Zechariah was considered a minor prophet. Does that make sense? Um, Moving on. Verse 33, when a man opens a pit and when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price and the dead beast also they shall share. Which I think is kind of cool because they sell the ox that did the, the killing so that they could split the money. And then they split the animal and they have a barbecue. <laughs> so um, it doesn't say that, but it's like, what else would they do with the dead animal? And they would probably eat it, you know. Um, I don't know. Maybe they just got to decorate their house with it or something. Uh, or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. You're like, why is it so specific? It's because God knows the heart of man. It says that Jesus, uh, he would not commit himself to man because he knew what was in man. And Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We see verses in the Bible about how God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God knew that the Ten Commandments, people would always be looking for loopholes of how to, you know, well, it doesn't say anything about oxes, so it must be okay, right? Jesus never said anything about X, so it must be fine. The Bible doesn't explicitly talk about Y and Z, so we should be able to adopt it into our culture as the norm, right? Does that sound familiar at all? So I'm thankful that God is as specific as he is, even if it kind of becomes uh, tedious as we read it. Um, Can you imagine what would be allowed if things weren't even more explicit in the Bible as they already are? People are always looking for ways to condone their behavior, even their animals' behavior in some ways, so God is very specific. So I'm just going to read through uh, most of chapter 22 because it's kind of the same stuff and it's basically just, if this happens, then you're going to pay back this much because he's giving people a judicial system. You know, they didn't have a judge and a jury and all that stuff. So Moses needed to know and the elders needed to know, what do we do in these situations? So God is really outlining, you know, a bill of rights, uh, you know, a constitution, all these things that we've had the, the privilege of enjoying someone else writing way ahead of us so that we can live in their freedoms. God is instituting that now. So, 
he's going to talk a lot about animals for a little while, so we'll just power through. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Again, these laws were to deter these things from happening. You know, not, hey, just so you know, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. It was to say, do you understand the severity of what could happen and what you would be on the hook for if you do these things? It didn't always work, but, you know, in some cases, I'm sure people thought twice about doing X, Y, or Z. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. And this is something, I forget what they call this, but this is something that's even true today. So, and then I just saw something on the, online about it where somebody broke, someone threatened that they were going to come into their house and kill them, and they broke into their house the next night, and the homeowner shot them and killed them. And they're not, as long, at least as that I saw, they're not pursuing any charges against the homeowner because they acted in self-defense. And there's a specific term for it that escapes me right now. But it says, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. So, <clears throat> you know, uh, the, they also have uh, laws where if the person's trying to escape and you shoot them in the back, then you could actually be liable because the person was not trying to harm you. They were actually trying to get away. Even though they stole your stuff, whatever, you took it, it was excessive force for you to take their life. And there's different things like that. But this is talking about, you know, you knew who it was. And the next morning, you go to that guy's house and you kill him. The sun rose on him. Or, you know, at night you don't know who it is. You're, you know, you don't, you're protecting your family. But if it's in the daylight and you can see their face and you can, you know, everybody kind of knows what's happening and you still decide, I'm going to take this guy's life, there is going to be blood guilt for you because that's considered excessive force. Um, it says, he shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So, here was a, here's the reason we see slavery involved is because this person, in, in his case, he became a slave because he stole something and he became a slave to repay for what he had done. So in this case, slavery was warranted and probably a good thing. I'm sure the guy would much rather be a slave than be killed for his theft, right? Uh, you know, he could kind of at least live out his life in some way. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So if they find the guy and he has the property in hand, he has to give it back and pay double that. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and his own vineyard. So again, God sees the heart of man and he knows, you know what, my neighbor is always bragging about how good his crop is. I'm going to send my animals over there to eat up all their crop, and I'll show him. So God says, well, you're going to take the best of your stuff to pay back that guy. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain of the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Plain and simple. doesn't need any elaboration. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So essentially the guy would come forward and say, hey, somebody broke into our house while I was holding your stuff. I didn't touch it. And they would bring it before God and the judges to see if the guy was telling the truth because they had no thief to punish. So they would have to weigh that out to see if the person was being honest or if they had actually just stolen it and were trying to blame it on some uh, phantom thief. 
If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. You guys understand what that is saying? It's kind of the same idea that if the beast disappears or whatever, the guy, if the guy can prove that it wasn't his fault, then he doesn't have to make restitution. But if he can't, then they have to come to some type of agreement. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So essentially, they're saying, you know, if you borrow something and you don't keep it in sight and something bad happens, then you're negligent. So you make restitution in that case. If it's with you and some, you know, something freakish happens or whatever, then you essentially, you know, you paid the guy to borrow it, whatever, hiring fee, they take care of business. Now, we'll finish with this part. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. And everybody gets up in arms saying, so you let this rapist come in and marry this guy and he doesn't get punished. Well, the word seduces there, and I'm not going to spend any more time on it than we need to, but it, it essentially means that he seduced her. You know, she, she became consenting to the act. Um, so the guy had two options. Um, he could either pay the bride, pri- bride price for her and make her his wife because he had to have her, you know, uh, he couldn't resist. Or if the father refused, he would still have to pay the bride price for her because most likely this woman, having been with a man already, would be less likely to marry ever again. So she would be in the possession of her father. Her father would be tasked with taking care of her for the rest of her life um, because of her status as seeing, you know, being seen as, you know, damaged goods or something. Um, You shall not permit a sorceress to live, plain and simple. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death, plain and simple. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God never wants them, you know, he wants them to live in freedom, but he never wants them to forget where they came from. Is that interesting? Because he wants the, the children of Israel to be merciful to the sojourners. He also says, to be merciful to your slaves because you used to be a slave. And I think that's important for us as Christians to remember that we don't become puffed up or high-minded and say, look at that guy. I can't believe he fell into that sin again. Or I can't believe, you know, he's so, you know, wishy-washy, you know. And God says, you know, Paul says, but such were some of you. Like, don't forget that God saved you and redeemed you so that all of a sudden you become callous to those who are not on the same high level as you. And that's dangerous because you don't even realize it's happening that you get like this kind of puffed up spirituality that's, that's false. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. There are numerous verses in the Bible and you can look them up about God's love for the widow and for the orphan. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. So if, if God you know, gives you the urge to help somebody out, you shouldn't be counting the days until they repay you, which is hard for us. But he's saying you shouldn't treat it like a bank. This should be a brother-to-brother type of uh, you know, charity type of situation. 
If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. We talked about that um, back earlier when it says, you know, consecrating the firstborn and, uh, and how God takes that very seriously. Um, the first, he's not actually, you know, saying give me the firstborn as a sacrifice uh, like he will with the oxen and the sheep, but it's the idea of consecrating that firstborn child, that heir to the Lord. Um, you shall do the same with your oxen and your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So God is, you know, we see various kinds of laws. We see moral laws. We see ceremonial laws. And then we see, uh, I forget what they're called, like the, uh, the civil laws. Yeah, um, there's the idea of like what you should eat, how you should behave, and how you should worship. Like they kind of break down into those little three categories. Um, and sometimes we get weirded out by like when God says, don't eat that, don't eat this. But when you think about it, the practicality of that was God wanted to preserve his people and keep them holy and clean so that they wouldn't be touched with the diseases and the infirmities of the other nations. And oftentimes that was caused by what they ate and what they were allowing in their bodies. They just had reckless uh, you know, diets and, and doing all these things. So when we see things about God restricting, like don't eat that thing that was torn by beasts, He's protecting them because they didn't have modern physicians and medicines and all that stuff. And, you know, people, you know, the children of Israel were most likely way more healthy and probably lived longer as long as they were obeying God and not, you know, rebelling against him. But that's, you know, that's the significance there. But I will just end with this verse that we read through when it says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Um, you know, while we always want to stand up for the truth, we have to be mindful of how we're doing it and how we're showing the love of God in our righteous indignation as we often um, explain it away. You know, and I, I see it all the time and I'm guilty of it myself of just forgetting who is on the throne and bad-mouthing those who are on these little earthly thrones. Um, so, you know, the Bible is very clear. We see it in Romans as well where Paul says, you know, you should not, um, you should give honor to the king. And at his time, it was Nero, and he's saying that you should, you know, God put him in authority, so we should give him the honor that God gives him. You know, that's really challenging for me, especially when, when we constantly see things happening, whether our, they be our elected officials or our celebrities, and we're always crying out against them and saying that they're evil and all these things, and we're not separating their actions and, and who's behind their actions from the individual. And I think God is very... Uh, vocal on that in the, in the scriptures, and, and I just take that as a challenge, and, and I feel like it's a good kind of um, exhortation to all of us to remember that, especially in times like this when we're constantly seeing things that are contrary to what God has taught us to do, being accepted as the norm and being accepted as law. So uh, it's important that while we stand up and we are righteous and we're angry over sin, that we are not disrespectful and uh, essentially questioning God's authority by questioning the people that he has placed in authority in some kind of hidden way. We don't think of it that way, but it is important that we do remember that God is on the throne. And it's comforting. It's very comforting when you actually do remember that because oftentimes when we look around at what's going on, we don't always remember that. So, um, you know, kind of a 
a textbooky kind of study, but you know, every once in a while, not so bad. <laughs> um, so I appreciate your patience, and uh, uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for uh, the depth of it and, and its meaning and, and its, last, its long-lasting effect in our lives, even if it's not immediate. You know, we don't feel all tingly sometimes when we read certain verses, but as we chew on them, as we think about them over time, they speak to us volumes, Lord, and uh, your voice cries out to us, Lord. Um, and we're thankful for your word. And I just pray for our church. Pray for uh, the book study, the service on Sunday morning, Church Without Walls. I pray that your your church would rise up and awake to the calling that you place on each one of us to uh, to love and to believe and to, to lead others to, to you. In Jesus' name, amen.